Now in its third year, it's a yank on the footy with Craig Wessels talking about the greatest game on the face of the earth. Sit back and enjoy, everybody. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 149 of A Yank on the Footy. I'm Craig Wessels coming to you from Sandusky, Ohio, and thanks for giving this episode a listen. I really think you're going to love this discussion, even if you are not a Bulldog supporter. There are some fantastic stories coming up here. In this 2022 preview episode, I am sitting down to preview the Bulldogs, as I'd mentioned, with a gentleman who has been following the Bulldogs longer than I've been alive, and some people call me old. Stephen Campbell is a very knowledgeable Bulldog supporter, but his stories that we discussed in our our talk are going to make you want to pour yourself a cup of your favorite beverage, grab a snack, and enjoy everything that he has to share. Now, don't forget that you can find everything related to the podcast over at my website, ayankonthefooty.com. You can get on the mailing list, which I hope you do. You can leave me a review. If you're enjoying the show, there's a spot there where you can leave a review up at the top, and I can share those out on social media. A huge help to encourage people to tune into the podcast. I do hope you'll consider doing that. You can leave me a voicemail there as well. And with the mailing list, when I do live episodes, I send those out uh 24 hours in advance to let people know that I'm going to be going live. So hopefully you'll consider doing that. And if you're enjoying the show and you want to help out the podcast, you might want to consider clicking on that little button in the bottom left-hand corner, which takes you to my Buy Me a Coffee page. If you want to help keep the podcast up and running and uh, help to defray some of the cost, that'd be greatly appreciated. You don't have to, of course, but I certainly would not uh, hate it if it happened. But again, thanks so very much. And if you're interested in any uh, podcast gear, including the new logo that I just posted over on my Redbubble page, click on the store button up at the top and you can go ahead and uh, sign up to get something from there as well. And I do hope that you enjoy my chat with Stephen Campbell. This was an absolute treat. We went down so many different avenues and directions and just the names that were dropped in this conversation were just jaw-dropping. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my guest for our Western Bulldogs preview is someone whose life experiences have to be some of the most interesting of anyone I've had the chance to speak with before. We've been chatting for about a half an hour before I've hit the record button, and it's the stories that we're going to be hearing here are, are absolutely fascinating, and I, and I can't wait to share these with you. Uh, he has attended two of the three most recent Bulldogs grand final appearances. And no, he did not sneak into Western Australia last year to go to Optus. I am honored to be joined by longtime Bulldog supporter, Stephen Campbell. Stephen, thanks for coming on today, sir. You're very welcome, Craig. It's uh, uh, my pleasure to, to join you for this podcast. This is, I, I'm so glad you reached out. We've been trading emails and I actually found out that the, the WhatsApp works um, across 16 time zones as well although 15 sure after this weekend because our we, we set our clocks ahead an hour on sunday so it's um it's great to talk with you and and i can't i can't wait to share your stories I, i'm i almost feel like a uh you know a podcasting version of a kid on christmas morning and i've just come down the stairs and looking under the tree going what do i open first because there's so many stories that i want to get into with you here that i just i don't know where to to begin, but we're gonna we're gonna start at the beginning of this. And you are not originally from Australia. 
you emigrated for somewhere from somewhere else and it took you a significantly long long period of time to 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 carve through the language barrier i'm sure well uh, <laughs> I, was very, I was very young at the time uh, craig uh, my family uh, migrated uh, by boat uh, in 1951 and to just fill in a little bit of the historical background uh, World War II ended in 45, of course. My father got demobbed. He was a member, of, he was in the Royal Engineers, uh, diffusing bombs all over the south of England. Uh, there was mum and dad and us four kids. So I was born, uh, two of my uh, older siblings were born during the war. My sister Maggie was born on April the 20th, 1940, which was Hitler's birthday. And uh, my brother Peter, my late brother Peter, was born. Uh, about three years later in May. Uh, so two children born during the war. My sister Pauline born just when the war closed in uh, December 1945, and I was born in December 48. So we migrated in 51 aboard a, an ex-troop ship, uh, the SS Cheshire, and we were 10-pound poms. It cost my father 10 English pounds for the passage to Australia for himself, my mother, and the four children. So we left uh, Liverpool on the Cheshire and sailed around the Bay of Biscay into the Mediterranean, then to Suez and Port Side, and mm -hmm. called in Aden at the end of the um, the uh, the Red Sea, which was a you know now in modern day Yemen, uh, and uh, then we crossed the Indian Ocean. And uh, in cross, when we crossed the Indian Ocean, I actually got uh, meningitis, hmm. viral meningitis, and I nearly died. Wow. Uh, my, my father was a Catholic. My mother was Church of England, but neither of them were churchgoers. But I had never been baptized. Uh -huh. So they thought I was going to die. And so the ship's chaplain uh, baptized me at sea. And I still have the baptismal certificate. It was uh, registered at St. Mary's Church in Port Melbourne when the ship docked in Melbourne. Okay. I've got the baptismal certificate and uh, I, I survived. Uh, however, the doctor that saved my life uh, when we were crossing the Indian Ocean between Aden and Colombo, he was later found out by Captain Potter to have been getting into the ship's stores of morphine because he was a morphine addict. Oh, wow. And he got put off the boat in Colombo. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, he saved my life. So that's the, you know, the beginning of my life in Australia. I was two and a half years, yeah, about two and a half years old when we landed in Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, the best decision my, my father and my mother ever made was to leave uh, Europe, leave England and come out and start a new life in Australia. And uh, yeah, I will always be grateful for them, to them for having the courage to do that. Now, now I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of fly in the face of the, uh, of a lot of the things that are talked about in terms of, you know, job sharing and that sort of thing in the present day, but I'm going to ask the question of the 1950s. What career did your father have once he came here to Australia? Well, the old man always used to say he was a jack of all trades and master of none. Okay. Uh, he had he was born in South Shields in the north of England. Uh, his father was a professor of music, uh, and hmm. uh, he 
his brother was a very, very talented musician and was a band leader in London in the 1930s, had his own band, and uh, he later on went to be, he, he became the musical director at the Theatre Royal in Dublin. However, he was quite well off because he was in show business and there was a lot of massive unemployment in the north of England and my uh, uncle Jimmy invited dad to come down because he could get him a job in uh, London as a commissioner or a doorman at the cinema, mm -hmm. uh, at Gorman British Cinemas. So dad came down to London in about 1931 and that's where he met my mother. She was a, an usher. At the at the at the, the at the cinema, and so they married in 1934. After after marriage, Dad we got a job as a boiler attendant uh, at a big hospital in London at a place called Barking. So, but yeah, I think it was yeah a hospital in London. He also worked at the Barking side power station, attending boilers there, and then he was drafted into the army and spent the Second World War in the army. And after that. Uh, he went back to being a boiler attendant and then he was recruited by the Victorian Railways as uh, Australia had received a great scare during World War II and uh, the government adopted on a mass migration policy. Mm -hmm. they, they actually uh, said that, you know, Australia had to populate or perish. And oh. so uh, they began bringing out just literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of displaced people from Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, there was a massive dislocation and, uh, uh, you know, so many people were brought out from Europe in that time and they recruited work, the, the railways recruited workers and uh, we were, we had a house to live in uh, that was, you know, they were all, uh, they were actually prefabricated houses that bought out. And there was a railway estate in this area in Braybrook, and we lived there. And Dad spent the next uh, probably twenty odd years working for the railways as a fitter's assistant. Okay. So okay. yeah, that's the yeah short story of of. Well, of... you know it, it it's interesting, and uh, this I'm going to mention this now, and those of you who are listening will. I think be able to confirm this statement after we've finished up our conversation today. But I think it's rather interesting that your parents met in a movie theater yeah. because what we're about to talk about with regards to your life in many ways could be a movie. <laughs> so I just think that's that's really an interesting connection there that 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 you are that you are the product, you know. And, and you said that your dad was a jack of all trades, master of none. I'm going yeah. to argue. I'm going to argue that he mastered one thing very well, and that was diffusing bombs. Yeah, well, because that's if, for he, sure. if he if he was a if he was lousy at that job, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. That's true. Actually, <laughs> actually, the BBC produced a series called Danger UXB, uh -huh. and it was based on the diaries of my 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 father's commanding officer, Major Hartley. Hmm. He kept these scrupulously, uh, scrupulously kept these diaries during during the war, and uh, somehow the BBC got hold of them and used those to to put together this series, Danger UXB. It was black and white television, probably shown in Australia in the nineteen sixties. Okay, but yeah, late nineteen sixties, I believe. Yeah, <clears throat> but yeah, wow. that's one thing he mastered for sure. Yeah, that that. 
Just he also very- used to tell a really good story about his time in the army. Uh, the old man was a professional boxer when he was very young, mm-hmm. 17, 18, 19, in the north of England. And when he joined the army, um, they had uh, a boxing championship. Uh-huh. And even though he was a bit older than uh, most of the other recruits, he was in his 30s. Uh, he was about 35, 36. Um, he won the he won the regimental championship, and uh, for his his prize was 500 cigarettes. <laughs> was he a, was he a smoker? Yeah, he was. And when when the commanding when when the CO gave him his prize, he said to him, "Well done, Sapper." I think you fought before. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> well, yeah, and and I and I, I know that term sapper because that that get that term gets used for the engineers in the army here in the U.S. as well. That that's yeah. a, that's a that's a much more universal term there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to get talking about your your fascination with motorcycles and traveling here in in just a moment. But I, I you mentioned this, and I. I wanted to ask you this question, and uh, how in the heck did Ted Witten end up at your house when you were a kid? Oh, uh, yeah, this is a good story. Uh, Ted Witten, who, you know, I'm, you're sure I'm biased. I mean, he played for the Bulldogs. He was absolutely the biggest personality the game has ever seen. There is no doubt about it. How do you explain a guy who captain coached a team that had virtually zero success from well won the premiership in 54 made the finals in 56 never appeared again until 1961 made a grand final in 61 and then never ever had another finals experience uh, uh, finals game until ted Whitten retired in 1970 mm-hmm. so he was not from a big team a big successful team but he was Mr. Football. His personality was so big. He was such a great player. Uh, he was universally loved by Bulldog supporters, absolutely. He was respected by all the other clubs too. Not loved, but respected. But he was acknowledged as the best player in the competition. So he came to our house in the following way. Um he never had a profession. He never had a trade. So he did a lot of different things in his uh, in his working life outside football. And one of the things he did, he started a driving school. And when my brother was 18 and went for his driving license, Ted Whitten <laughs> took him for his driving license. Okay. And, of course, he passed his license first up. And when they got back to the house in the car, my brother said to Ted, you know, do you want to come in and – to meet my my mum and uh, my young brother. He, my young brother would love to meet you. And so, yeah, he came in. He sat down at the kitchen table, had a cup of tea, some fruitcake, and he was just like talking to a bloke that uh, he had no airs and graces. He was just a great human being like that. Wow. And he was u- universally recognised for being like that. Uh-huh. He would He would talk to anyone. He treated people, no matter who you were, he treated people with respect and decency. Uh, he was a wonderful human being. That's so, yeah, he came to our house. I got his autograph. 
And, yeah, he spent half an hour chatting to us and just a great guy. I was about 12 years old when I met him. Wow. And and that that is – that's – you know, and, and that's one of the things, you know, and, again, the game was a lot different when you were 12 oh, years old than, than it is today. But, yeah. but I still make the argument that that footy and the relationship between the fans, between the supporters and the clubs when COVID is not around – is unlike anything that we have here in the United States. Now, mm. during during baseball spring training, the relationship between the fans and and the and the players is a lot different than it is during the the, the grind of playing 162 games over the course of seven months. You know, there's wow. not there's not there's yes, they'll they'll sign autographs here and there, but you know the just the the love affair that looks like is going on between the uh, the supporters and the clubs is, is just amazing. It's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's great to see. And I'm, and I, it's one of the things that I really, really love about this game. And that, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, sit here 16 time zones away and go, I really like that, even though I'm not there, but hope to be someday to get to see it in person. Yeah. Well, you know, like even like well, foot, football in, in, in Australia now has become, you know, a very professional game compared mm-hmm. to what it was back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But even now, I can go down to the Western Bulldogs Football Club uh, any day of the week. I can go into Barker's Cafe at lunchtime, and there'll be players in there having their lunch, and you can go up and have a chat to them, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's still they're still very approachable like that, you know. There isn't this barrier put between the players and the public and the supporters, right. you know. Right. So it's still very good like that. Yeah, and that's yeah, you know, and I've made that argument, and those of you who listen to the podcast regularly have heard this before. But yeah, you know, as I've said, yeah, you know, and I and I don't begrudge you know anybody making as much money as they can at their job. You know, get get every penny that you can. I have no problem with that at all. I'm I'm a I'm I'm big on capitalism, but you know the 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 athletes in most of the professional sports here in the U.S they you know the salary structure has put them in a different orbit than the fans as i've said you know you're gonna you might run into you know a uh a bulldogs player at the coffee shop in the morning but you know you're not you're not gonna find you know you're not gonna run into lebron james at the local grocery store picking up a gallon of milk because his wife forgot to get milk at the grocery or something like that that's never gonna happen yeah, yeah. That point you made about them being in another orbit. I do remember reading an article in a magazine that I used to subscribe to a few years ago called Inside Indonesia, and it was an article about the conditions of Nike workers in in, in factories in Indonesia. And mm. at the time, Michael Johnson's sponsorship from Nike was, I think, it was about six million dollars a year. And uh-huh. it was greater than the wages bill for the Indonesian workforce of Nike. That, that's the comparison. One wow. man was as much as thousands of Indonesian workers in Nike factories. So, yeah, another yeah. orbit, definitely. Yeah, another that's, orbit. That's a, uh, that's a great point. So you, uh, you mentioned that when you were younger um, – you do not remember the 1954 grand final, but your, your no. family, your family is, must have something that they talk about or that they have talked about for 
a lifetime about it. Well, no, not not at all. Oh, what okay. happened with this? This this is really you know this is quite interesting. In 1954. Uh, when the Bulldogs made the, the grand final, their first ever appearance in the grand final, they'd been in the competition for 30 years, having been brought in in 1924 with North Melbourne and Hawthorne. So it took 30 years for the Bulldogs to make a grand final. And a couple of years before that, we arrived in Australia in 1951. The Queen had you know, got married only a couple of years before. She made a royal visit to Australia, and I think it might have been about 52 or 53. Okay. And in 54, my mother went into Footscray on the bus from where we lived in Braybrook, just about a you know 25-minute bus ride, and she could see all this red, white, and blue bunting all up and down the main street in Footscray and flags, red, white, and blue everywhere. And she thought, you know, oh, I must have missed the news. The Queen must be coming for another royal visit. <laughs> and, of course, you know, because they, they, my parents didn't follow AFL. My, uh -huh. my old man was a mad keen Newcastle United supporter from you know, the English Football League. And Newcastle United had their golden years in the early 1950s. They won the FA Cup three times in five years. So my dad was a mad keen soccer supporter. Mm -hmm. My mother wasn't really interested in sport. So I actually got involved in, uh, in AFL, VFL, through my brother was a Bulldog supporter. But okay. the thing that really got me involved was the club, the Footscray Football Club used to give out uh, premiership tickets or sorry um, seasons tickets to the schools in the area so you could go to the football it didn't cost you anything okay. they, they gave you a ticket to get in so that's how I got in to to see my first games for the Bulldogs back in 1956 okay and okay. Uh, you know my brother was a supporter my sisters weren't interested in football too much my brother was a supporter and you know, he he got me a ticket to go and see the 61 grand final. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he, he got, a, he got you know, what a scalper is, of course. Yes. Yeah, so we, I remember going with my brother to the MCG to see the Bulldogs play Hawthorne, and uh, he, we bought t he bought tickets from a scalper, and, uh, yeah, I got to see the game um, in standing room. There was my brother, his girlfriend at the time, uh, and a guy called Philip Cook, a mate of his, and me and uh -huh. I stood in those days Victoria Bitter was sold in big 26 fluid ounce cans yeah. tin cans not these aluminium things that you can you know crush between two fingers right these right. were solid tin cans and because I was only 12 years old not too tall and we we're in standing room uh -huh. I used to I stood on top of the beer cans to get a better <laughs> view huh. that's yeah. uh in order to get to CN, yeah. Well, I was I was hoping you weren't going to tell me that you that you went through a couple of those cans yourself during the game. Uh, no, no, <laughs> I, I I reserved that for later on when okay. I was uh, after okay. I, I can tell a few stories about that now, too. I you know I don't want to mention this, but uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and toss it out there. I don't know if you realize that the the 1961 Grand Final. And the 2021 grand final, the Bulldogs had an eight-point lead at halftime in both of those games. 
I didn't re- I, I knew we led at half time in 61. I didn't know uh-huh. that it was eight points. Yes. I didn't eight, know it was eight points. Eight points in both games. Yes. Yeah. Um, that 1961 uh, grand final was, you know, probably uh, as big a surprise to many Bulldog supporters as to, you know, all of the, the supporters in the league because we didn't have a very strong side, you know, mm-hmm. to, and we made the grand final. Uh, unexpectedly, the the game the game that got us into the grand final. I was there. I was only a kid. I was uh, I must have been twelve, right? Yeah. It, the last game of the year, we had to defeat Geelong to get into the four. Of Geelong course you. Of fourth, course you did. <laughs> Geelong were fourth, and we were fifth. And whoever won took up the fourth position. The game was at the Western Oval. And I remember this game absolutely with great clarity because Ted Whitten kicked the two longest drop kick goals I have ever seen uh, in the second quarter. We won the game by about 20 points. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the game, I went with my mate Arthur Milligan. We actually got into the rooms after the game. The, the rooms were packed with supporters, yeah. packed with supporters. And Ted Whitten made a absolutely inspiring speech he got up on a table and he was bollock naked he was toweling himself down and i still remember he said we're gonna go all the way stick with us we made it this far (laughs) we are gonna go all the way it was very inspiring speech uh and it was great to be there amongst all the supporters now sadly we didn't go on to win the game right it was a bit it was a bit um it was a, a bit, uh, you know, we had a few injuries in the first half and it was a very, very hot day. And Hawthorne had uh, had the week's rest and they steamrolled us in the second half. Mm-hmm. But it was no, and it was, you know, great for Hawthorne supporters to win. Their first premiership yeah. uh, was a great thing because they'd been down for years and years and years. Well, when, uh, when he was making that speech, it's probably a good thing that uh, that that roaming Brian Taylor was not down there to, to do an interview <laughs> yeah. at that time because yeah. they might not have been back on television for a while then. But was, yeah, exactly. was that game exactly. was that game after Ted Witten had been at your house? Uh, yeah, it was because okay. he came to our house. I think in 1960 or the very beginning of 1961. But you know those two drop kicks. I tell you, you know Lou Richards, who's someone you you would have heard of. Lou Richards, a famous Collingwood captain and and newspaper right columnist, and he died of just a few years ago. He was a couple of years ago. He was in his 90s. Lou Richards, mm-hmm. and he used to write for the Herald Sun. And he was a very, very prominent figure on sports shows on Sunday morning, uh, Channel 7's World of Sport. Okay. A much, much loved character. And he, I can remember him writing. He used to, all right, he was prone to a bit of exaggeration. But in the Monday morning Herald Sun, he wrote his match report and he said, Ted Whitten defeated Geelong with two of the longest drop kicks you will ever see. The first one went, 85 yards. The second one went 84 yards, two feet and six inches. <laughs> so yeah, it, it 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 was. Ted was an inspiring captain, an inspiring player. Uh, well worth having a look at any of the stuff on YouTube of his highlights. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of them, 
mm-hmm. uh, but uh, a very great player. One thing I do remember about him, it was a, a famous mark that he took against North Melbourne at the Arden Street ground. There used to be, there's a, it's a great photo. It's available, you know, you'll, you'll, the, the photo's on, on the web. Okay. It's a great photo because it looks like they're playing football inside an industrial complex because in the background there's this massive gasometer uh, uh, that was beside the North Melbourne ground. Okay. And Ted Whitman's taken this mark standing on Frank Galley's shoulders and you can and the background is this gasometer and a couple of players looking on. It's a very, very evocative photo. Um, but, yeah, I was fortunate to see Ted play from 1956 up to 1970. Yep, that's that's fascinating. So uh, that's that's going to answer a question I was going to ask you later on in terms of, you know, who were some of the greatest players you've ever witnessed playing, but that's evidently one. But let's get let's get to your your travels here because we're, we're going to come back and actually talk about the 2022 Bulldogs as well because they've got they've got a score to settle with the Demons here. So Sure. Um how did you get interested in motorcycles? Because it's not something, you know, I, a lot of people ride, but it's not something that some, most people don't ride to the extent that you do. Well, you know, it's very like, uh, I might have mentioned it before, this friend of my father's came out uh, on a Sunbeam motorcycle and sidecar in 1954. And that was the first, he came, he came out with his wife. This guy's his name was Cecil Ledger. He was 57 years old. His wife was a bit younger than him, Viner. She was about 35. And he took me for a ride up on, I was sitting on the back of the bike, not in the sidecar. And we went up the, we went up um, South Road to a petrol station about a mile away to get fuel. And it was a thrilling experience. The sound, the speed, the wind, the smell of the hot engine when we stopped. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was a, it, it, it was the first time I'd travelled at speed. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I might have been on a bus. Uh, I, we hadn't, we didn't have a car, so I'd never travelled in a car. Uh, it was the first time I'd been at speed, and it left an indelible impression on me. So, Ev- evidently, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, you've uh, you. And I'm going to put links to the websites that you shared with me here, but you have ridden motorcycles literally all over the world. And well, it's, yeah, all over Asia, not all yeah, over the well, world, but all over Asia. It's a pretty, well, and Europe too, if I'm not yeah, mistaken, Europe, yeah. you know, so yeah. you've, you, you've hit, you've hit several continents. Um, and, uh, you know, who's going to, who's going to come tell us that we were wrong here, you know? Are they are they going to dig into your they going to dig into your logbook and check and go? Well, he didn't get South America, uh, but tell but, us. Yeah, you know, I want to know about some of these experiences, you know, and you know whether or not you were traveling for the sake of of just getting out and traveling, or if there was an ulterior motive behind it. And you know, I'm going to want to get into like you know the longest distances you traveled, the other stuff that you've seen as we go along, but. How did you, you know, you got the bug as a young child riding the motorcycles and when did you, when did you get your first motorcycle and when did you decide I need to start making these long journeys? Well, before I actually traveled by motorcycle, the first big trip I made was with four, four school friends. Now, I don't know, I don't know what, I mean, we were just all on the same wavelengths. When we were in year 11, we decided that we were going to buy a Land Rover 
or some vehicle and we were going to drive overland to Europe, to London. This is when we were about 17 years old. Now, it didn't work out exactly that way. Uh, I went and did year 12. Uh, uh, one of my mates went out to work. The other two were doing engineering courses. And one of my friends, my, my best friend, actually, he developed a, a bone spurs on his heels. And uh, the, another friend, he actually went over to Europe with a band that he'd been roadieing for, a band called Procession. And he went over to London with them. And when he was over there, he decided, uh, my mate with the bone spurs, he was sick of putting up with these things. And he decided he'd go over to Europe just to get his mind off the pain that he was suffering. Mm -hmm. And he went over there and uh, they actually went out to uh, Amsterdam. They bought a combi van, a 1200cc Volkswagen combi, and they drove down to Morocco. Okay. And the big plan was then hatched that they would drive the van out to India and me and my other mate, Ken, would travel up to Darwin, get on a plane to Portuguese East Timor and make our way overland and we'd meet outside the general post office in Madras uh, sometime uh, later in the year. So we sort of kept in touch by mail. <laughs> was a bit if and it was a I was bit say, hit that heads. had to be hard to do. Yeah, it was because um, they they set out from Amsterdam in this combi van, and they they estimated that they they'd take about three or four months to reach India. And yeah. we uh, set out from Melbourne, and we estimated, well, yeah, we could probably make it to Madras in three or four months, and we did. I mean, we met outside the post office mm -hmm. in Madras. Uh, in 19, probably about, I think it would have been about uh, the middle of 1970, maybe a little bit later in the year. Okay. And uh, travel around in the combi van. And, uh, you know, as things turned to, came to pass, I, there was one, you know, there was a, I didn't really get on with one of the, the guy who owned the combi van. You know, he, uh, I just wasn't enjoying traveling with them anymore. Well, him, him, him in particular. So, I thought it'd be best if I set off on my own because I, I wanted to meet up with my sister who'd gone back to England. She'd been in London for a couple of years. Um, she left Australia in 1961. And so she'd been in England for about nine or 10 years. So I traveled up on my own. I left and I started traveling on public transport. I went up by train up to Bombay, then crossed over India and went into Nepal came back into India again, up to Pakistan. And when I got to Afghanistan, I found a letter waiting for me at Post Restant in the Kabul post office. Hmm. And it was a letter from my mates. They'd been trying to contact me everywhere to tell me that they'd had a serious uh, road accident in India and my best friend, Rolly, had been killed in the road wow. accident. Wow. And they had uh, they had gone, they'd got to Bombay and they were... Uh, trying, you know, they, that's where they were. When I got this letter, I decided to abandon my attempt to get to London, but I'd mm -hmm. go back to meet up with them in Bombay, uh, and that's what I did. Okay. And uh, we had a meeting. The three of us decided, you know, we'd we'd make our ways separately back to to Australia. And so, yeah, I, I got back at the end of 1970. That was my first trip, but it really whetted my appetite for for travel, and that's when I decided 
to ride a get a motorcycle and ride a motorcycle over to um, to London. So I bought a motorcycle as soon as I got back to Australia, and uh, started planning that trip with another mate of mine who was keen to join me. Uh, he bought a motorcycle in Singapore. He bought a Honda One Seven Five. I had a Honda Four Fifty Twin, and then we uh, yeah we rode up to Thailand together. Uh, actually. My, my motorbike got held up by a wharfie strike. Uh, uh, you call them um, longshoremen, don't you? Mm-hmm. We call them wharfies. There was a wharfie strike in Melbourne, and uh, my motorbike got held up for about six weeks. Uh, so it wasn't in Singapore when I arrived. Uh, it was still on a ship somewhere from <laughs> Melbourne. So my mate bought a bike and the two of us travelled up to Thailand together on his 175 Honda. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah, it was a great trip. We went up to Chiang Mai up in the north and, uh, yeah, we uh, travelled around Thailand quite a bit. And by this stage, uh, my motorbike had arrived in Singapore, so we made our way south again. And uh, I remember this distinctly. We had the bright idea. We stayed at a, a famous traveller's haunt in Bangkok called the Tyson Greet Hotel. And it was a very atmospheric place. It had rooms upstairs and a kitchen downstairs. And it was about, it was a 24-hour place. You know, all the taxi drivers used to come there to get a meal at any time of the, of, of the night, you know. Okay. Uh, it was a place that was full of life. So we decided that to, avoid, to avoid the heat of the day and the traffic, We'd travel at night, so, so we left at midnight. Now I didn't even I didn't even have a helmet, right? I was wearing a sarong on my head, like a, a like it was a turban, you know. And my mate, my mate didn't have a full face helmet or a visor. Uh-huh. He had this open face helmet. And after about an hour or two of riding, the insects at night. It was a very balmy evening. The insects at night were giving him hell, so he decided to put on his sunglasses. So he's wearing sunglasses at about one o'clock in the morning. And, of course, the inevitable happened. Uh, We came to a point uh, where the road was sort of like up on an embankment between rice fields, Uh and they'd been putting a a big irrigation pipe under the road. So half of the road had been dug up. Oh, my goodness. And there was no (laughs) signage around. Oh, man. And in front of the hole, like there was a pile of screenings, probably about a metre and a half high, and there was a flimsy wooden barrier before that. And all I can remember, because I'm sitting on the back and I'm sort of dozing off, my head's resting on his back, and all I can – I just heard him yell out, oh, shit, like that. (laughs) And next minute, we go up like evil Knievel over this bloody ramp of screen through the barrier – over the screenings, and then the next thing, you know, I'm on the deck. Luckily, yeah. I I landed with my right arm in against my rib cage, and I landed on the point of my shoulder and my elbow and my right hip. And uh, yeah, I was badly shaken up. I, 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 you know, you just had the wind just knocked out of you, and mm-hmm. the, the motorbike was still going, the engine was still going. It smelled smell petrol. And my mate was calling out to me. He couldn't see. His face was all cut up. And uh, he, I, I, I sort of managed to get to my feet. I was a bit worried. I managed to roll over on my left side, get up, uh, hit the kill button on the motorbike and go and see him. And uh, he was bleeding profusely from cuts on his forehead. Blood was all in his eyes. We sort of cleaned him up a bit. 
And then we had to decide what we were going to do. Well, there was hardly, there was no traffic around. It was maybe one o'clock in the morning. And uh, unfortunately, in the accident, the um, the back brake pedal had got had bent. And so mm-hmm. when I got on the front of the bike to to ride it, and when my mate got on the back, the the swing arm came down and it locked on the back brake. Oh. So we couldn't ride two up. So, okay, we had to stop someone. So we had a Thai dictionary with us and we looked up the word for hospital and a couple of cars stopped, but they took one look at us. And I don't know whether people were superstitious or just didn't want to get involved or the sight of blood upset them, but they took off. But the third vehicle that came along was a truck and it had two guys in it. And there was a young girl about 18 and the guys didn't want to take us, but the uh-huh. girl, the girl was really feisty and she stood up to him and she said, no, no, you know, cause all we could say was hospital. And they took my mate in the truck and I rode, followed them in on the back of the hospital, uh, on the back, of, I followed them in on the motorbike. Cause I could uh-huh. ride it if I sat well up near the tank. Okay. Um, and we got into hospital and uh, they stitched my mate up. Uh, he had 27 stitches in his face. They x-rayed me. And I was in the hospital for about five or six days um, wow. because I could hardly walk. And I I had really great difficulty. They x-rayed me and so on. There was nothing broken. But I was just severely bruised, mm-hmm. and I could hardly raise my 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 right arm at all. It took it took it there yeah, about before I, I, I after about five days I could get my arm up to horizontal, and uh, then I we yeah, we decided look yeah we 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 really need to get going again. I I think I'm going to be okay. So we got on the motorbike and and continued the trip. But the people in the hospital were absolutely wonderful to us. Uh, they they wouldn't accept any payment for our time there. They were just superb, you know. They were just great people. Um, so yeah, well, that was the start of the trip. <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't start too well, but it ended uh, and it didn't end too well either. You've made you've made quite a few trips over the years. You know, you you said that you had one trip that you actually did finally get from Singapore to London. Yeah, that was the trip. You know, that, like okay, that was so, the trip. so this I, one you've made it. You made yeah. it to London then. So yeah, both of my, you on my, just one bike though. No, no, my bike arrived. My we my bike that I'd bought in Melbourne. We put it in a crate. Okay. And eventually, after the Wharfy strike finished, it arrived in Singapore. I went down. We after the accident in Thailand, we went back to Penang, which is a great that was where we had to catch the ferry to go over to Madras. Mm-hmm. My mate waited for me in Penang. I hitchhiked down to Singapore, picked up the bike, and uh, <laughs> what a pain that was! Um, in those days, uh, young travellers, there was this big sort of um, I don't know, it, like. Most young people in those days were opposed to the Vietnam War, and some people say some people say that this was really uh, a sort of a campaign organ, orchestrated by the U.S. government because they didn't want anti-war sentiment being spread by young anti-war people mm-hmm. uh, around Southeast Asia, and certainly some of the regimes at the time were like the regime in Singapore was very, very anti-Western, uh, young people, anti-long-haired you know, people, anti-hippie, whatever, you know. Indonesia was the same. 
And uh, I actually, when I went down to pick up my motorbike, I had a telegram from another uh, mate who who we was travelling at the same time, but not on a motorcycle. He was travelling with a couple of Canadian girls, and he he had uh, he had managed to find out that my bike had arrived in Singapore. So okay. he sent me a telegram. I had this telegram, and he told me where he was staying. He was staying at a hotel in Ben Coolen Street called the Kien Wa Hotel. And it was a hotel where, you know, young travellers would stay. You know, it was a cheap Chinese hotel and that's where young travellers would stay. So I go to Singapore and I'm trying to get in to pick up my motorbike and immigration said, no, no, you, you know, we're not going to let you come into Singapore. Mm. I'm saying, why not? You know, I've got to, I've got to pick up my motorbike. And, they said, well, you know, what proof have you got to pick up a motorbike? And I showed him the telegram. Mm-hmm. And this guy look, reads the telegram and he sees that, that, it, that my mate says, I'm staying at the Kianwa Hotel. And he said, ah, oh, you're hippies. Your mate's staying at a hippie hotel. You can't come into Singapore. And I had to stand there and argue with this guy and get his boss to come out and explain to his boss that I had – you know, a bill of lading for the motorcycle. Right, right. Uh, and showed in the documents, and eventually they let me in. They gave me a visa for a week to go in and pick up the motorbike and get out of there, and that's what I did. I, okay. I, I, I never ever want to go there again. Well, in my, fact, I got. In, my, in fact, go ahead. Um, I, in fact, I had actually been deported from Singapore <laughs> in nineteen in in nineteen seventy. On my way back to Australia, after my mate had been killed, I took a plane from Bangkok over to uh, sorry from Calcutta over to Bangkok, and uh-huh. I stood in the migration queue at Bangkok Airport with an American guy who had long hair and he had it tucked up under one one of those Nepali caps, right? Uh-huh. And this Thai immigration officer asked him to take off his cap so he did and he's got long hair mm-hmm. and i'm standing next to this guy we weren't traveling together we just met on the plane i don't right, even right. recall his name i had an, a, an indian shirt on a white linen shirt with no collar i was wearing jeans and i had very short hair i had my head shaved in varanasi on the banks of the ganges uh-huh. and my hair had only grown about a quarter of an inch but no, I got I got uh, lumped in with this guy, and we were both put on the next plane south to Singapore that mm. night. In Singapore, we got detained because we'd been kicked out of Thailand, and they locked us up in a room and gave us a jug of water at the airport, and they sent us back to Bangkok the next morning. They sent us back to Bangkok. And by this stage, the Thai Airways officials we're getting a bit worried because they didn't want these two foreigners being flown around all over Southeast Asia right. at their expense. So they had people in there to talk with immigration. To cut a long story short, the American guy had to get his hair cut, which he did, and they, they wrote a couple of things in my passport in, uh, in Thai, which I, I had a British passport at the time. So I took my passport to the British Embassy in Bangkok to get it translated as to what they'd written. And what they'd written over my Thai visa translated exactly like this. It said, this subject has since changed his attire and is no longer regarded as a hippie. <laughs> Can you believe <laughs> Can... Yeah. And I've, I've still got the passport. I've still yeah. got it. 
Wow. <laughs> so, so with all the travels that you have done and, you know, you've got, you've documented this very well on the website that you shared. And like I said, I will have a link to this in the, in the, the show notes there. Where's the, your favorite place that you have visited on your motorcycle? Okay. Look, uh, uh, there's two favorite places that I have in the I mean, world. I mean, I know it's not Singapore. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, in, in fact, I used to I used to give the Singapore government as much hell as I possibly could uh-huh. on the lonely on the lonely planet travelers website Thorn Tree. Okay. Uh, when, whenever people got on there asking questions about Singapore, I would uh, yeah I would uh, I would reply in a not too flattering way. Um, but yeah, look, my favourite places to visit. Well, number one, Indonesia, because you know I speak the language. My wife is Indonesian. I have a lot of friends there, and it's just a fantastic country to ride a motorcycle. I'm not okay. talking about I'm not talking about Bali or Java, which has got you know, very very heavily populated. Java's got like 140 million people uh-huh. uh, living on an island that's you know probably about a tenth the size of Texas. Uh, so it's very crowded, and I've never ridden a motorcycle in Java. But okay. I ride in Lombok and east of Lombok, where there's not 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 very heavily populated. The the scenery, the beaches, the mountains, volcanoes, forests, are just wonderful. The people are fantastic, and the food's great. And uh, you know, I just I have such wonderful experiences there. Um, I've climbed Mount Tambora twice on Sumbawa. Um, I've climbed Iliapi, a volcano east of Flores. Uh, I've got a lot of good contacts there, and I just enjoy it immensely. So Indonesia, number one, and number two, India. And uh, the reason why I, I pick India is because it has such a vast history mm-hmm. going back millennia. Uh, it's got so many... Uh, different languages and cultures, but over all of this, you can always find people who speak English. And uh-huh. it's when you can communicate with people that you can really get a feel for what's going on in a country. You f- you don't feel like a tourist when you can talk to people who aren't involved in the tourism business. Makes so sense. if if I go to Vietnam, I'm only going to be able to talk with people who basically are involved with tourism, uh-huh. you know, touts, uh, people in restaurants, uh, hotels, people organizing tours and so on. You right, don't right. get to speak to the local people. Whereas in India, you know, you can just communicate so easily with people who are not involved with tourism. You know, mm-hmm. they're government servants, they're school teachers, they're housewives, they're farmers, you know. They're small business people, you know. It, it's and look, the the scenery in India is so varied. The climatic conditions are so varied. Um, there's just a marvelous, marvelous panoply and vibrancy uh, about the place. I, I love the food as well. And you know, one of the things that I've really enjoyed following at the moment, there's a couple of young guys who have ridden motorcycles over from Sydney. They rode over from Sydney to London in 2019 just and got there before corona uh, broke out and they've got a vlog on youtube called north and left a bit 
and they chronicle their uh, journey with terrific uh, video footage. They've got a drone, and there's no bullshit about these guys. They're not trying to make themselves out to be heroes or the right, best right. or whatever. You see the mistakes they make. Um, you see the pitfalls. You They have a wonderful interaction with the local people. So as I'm not able to travel at the moment, because of Corona, uh, I really get a lot of enjoyment about following these guys, their exploits uh, vicariously. Okay. So we're going to kind of guide ourselves into the Bulldogs here now, but we're going to do that with one more motorcycling story. And I want to hear how you got yourself to the 2016 grand final. <laughs> yeah, look, this is a, this is a, a story I've told many times. And I love telling this story to people. Um, when I was, uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of stuff on um, websites uh, and a guy contacted me uh, on, I think it was uh, www.rideasia.net and on that site it, it says that I live in Lombok, Indonesia. Well, I also live in Bendigo, Australia, you know. So this guy contacted me. He thought I was in Lombok, but at the time he contacted me, I was back in Bendigo. So he wanted. He contacted me and said, "Look, I've got long service leave coming up. I'm a uh, an auto mechanics teacher uh, at Technical and Further Education College uh, near Bendigo at a place called Charlton. I've got long service leave in February. I want to come. Uh, sorry, in September. I want to come over and do a motorcycle trip with you through Eastern Indonesia. I've been looking at your stuff, and I want to come and visit these places. Are you?" would you be interested in, you know, doing this trip? Mm -hmm. So I actually got, I got in touch with him and said, look, I'm not in Indonesia at the moment. I'm in Bendigo. And he said, well, I'm in Bendigo too. And here's my phone number. So I rang him. Now, when I was back in Australia, I used to do a job delivering the Saturday morning and Sunday morning newspapers with, through my, using my car, you know, the mm -hmm. newspapers would be wrapped up in plastic yeah. and you just, throw them out the driver's side window, right? Mm -hmm. So I rang him and I said, yeah. I said, where do you live in Bendigo? He said, oh, I live in Golden Square. I said, oh, yeah, what street do you live in? He said, oh, Mercado Court. I said, oh, yeah, what number? He said, oh, number four. I said, mate, I've been delivering, when I'm back in Australia, I've been delivering your Saturday morning newspaper for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> We got look. We got on like a house on fire. This guy's a really keen motorcyclist, uh -huh. been a lifelong motorcyclist. We got on like a house on fire, and uh, I said to him, "Look straight away." I said, "This was in April 2016, in April, and I was just mm -hmm. about to leave for Indonesia." And I said to him, "Look, Daryl, we can go on this trip, right? But I'm telling you right now, if the Bulldogs make the 2016 Grand Final," I'll be turning around the next morning and going back to Australia for a week. Uh -huh. And he looked at me and he said, don't worry, that's never going to happen. And of course, <laughs> now, that were the perfect is, words. To, is he a Bulldog you know, supporter? No, he's an Essendon supporter. Okay. So, so the next day, uh, we, when we uh, set out on the trip, he arrived. He arrived just after we had defeated Hawthorne in the second semi-final, So we needed to get to a place where we'd be able to watch the preliminary final. And I knew a bar on the 
uh, east coast of Sumbawa, which is the next island east of Lombok, a bar called the Blue Lagoon, or uh, and there was also also a restaurant there that had uh, satellite TV coverage, and so. We rode over uh, after a couple of days and we got to Sumbawa to this uh, restaurant owned by a French guy. It's a ramshackle place built up on stilts. And um, we watched the game against GWS, uh, which was a pro- still, I think that it's probably the most exciting game of football I've ever seen. Uh-huh. And I turned around the next morning and uh, said, Daryl, I'm, go- you know, I'm, I'm going back for a week. I turned around. I organised my, my wife Sarah. I rang her and said, "You know, get me an airline ticket," and she got into into gear and organised the ticket for me. And uh, yeah, I rode back from Sumbawa and I made it back to uh, Lombok in one day. Um, I, I was on the road for fourteen and a half hours. Not all okay. of it riding because there's a ferry trip involved. Okay. We were on the ferry for about well, it's an hour and a half uh, crossing the water, and then we had to queue up to get into uh, to get off the ferry because it was a couple of boats ahead of us. And I probably, you know, I probably did ride for about uh, you know, 11 hours that day, 11 or 12 hours. And I made it back uh, about 9.30 at night. And uh, a couple of days later, uh, yeah, I made it back on, uh, would have been the Sunday. And on the Wednesday, I flew out to, went to, to Melbourne and I went to the grand final with my daughter. And uh, I was, yeah, I was back in Australia for a week. And uh, yeah, it was the, you know, be one of the best experiences of, of my life to Fantastic. see us win after 55 years. Right, I mean, right. that's a long time to wait for something, you know, mm-hmm. long time. And I, I, you know, I must be honest and say in the last few years, I'm thinking to myself, am I going to live to see the Bulldogs win a premiership? And I'm really pleased to say that uh, we won one. Well, and, um, and now you're at the point where you can say, are they going to get another one? And that is certainly a club that has as good a shot as anybody else. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I really, I believe that, you know, like uh, we, we've, we're in, in a very good position. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a couple of issues that uh, we, you know, we, we have an issue with our ruck uh, and we also uh in the past few years, we have not been treated well by the injury gods. Well, yeah. uh, losing Josh Bruce we did not help very much last year. Well, exactly. And I mean, that was an absolute tragedy uh, to lose him in the last minute of a game mm-hmm. right at the end of the season was, was very difficult. But, uh, you know, we also, during the season, we lost Dunkley and Trelaw. Right, um, right. So everyone's up and running and fit. And uh, we, we, we come through, pretty much you know un, relatively unscathed in comparison to the last few years i think we've got a really good shot at it really good shot yeah i i think this is a this is a a very solid club you know and there were you know quite frankly there were not a lot of openings on this list i mean they only they only brought in tim o'brien coming over from hawthorne this year yeah. i mean it's a yeah. you know there's, there were not that many positions that were going to be available on this on this list. That's that's exactly right. And there's one thing I might mention: um, the the current CEO at the Bulldogs, Amit Baines. He's a Bendigo boy from you know the town that I live in at the moment. Um, uh-huh. He's a, he's doing a great job. Um, Amit 
uh, I taught at the school that I didn't actually teach him, but he was at the school that I was teaching at uh, when he was doing his secondary education here in Bendigo, and he played football for South for South Bendigo. Um, his dad is from uh, from the Punjab in India, okay. and his mum his mum is also she's a, she's his dad's a Sikh and his mother's a Sikh also, but she was born in Indonesia and speaks fluent uh, Indonesian and Punjabi is. Uh, and uh, yeah, gr- great family. And Amit is doing a great job as the CEO of the Bulldogs. We got him over from St Kilda, where he did a great job at St Kilda. So we're very, very lucky to have Amit Baines as our CEO. Yeah, and you know, you look at the, you look at the list, and there are, you know, at the end of this year, you know, Adam, you know, Trelaw is twenty nine, Jason Johansson's yep. twenty nine, Mitch Wallace twenty nine, Josh Bruce will be thirty by the time the year's up. Uh, Tom yep. Liberatore will be 30. You know, Stephen Martin yep. is, is the senior citizen on the side at 35. Right. You know, and it's, if, if his body holds up in the ruck, you know, I, I don't see why as much as it pains me to say it as a, as a supporter of another club, I don't see, I don't see why this side cannot be back in the grand final again this year. You yeah. Know, look, I'm I, I, good clubs there. I believe that too. You know, like uh, I think, you know, the, the, the fade out against Melbourne was um, it was like a perfect storm for, mm-hmm. for, for Melbourne, you know, like I, I just, I don't think any team was going to stop them once they got that run on. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the rules have changed a lot, you know, in the old day, now with the six, six, six rule, uh, it makes it very difficult to get people. You can't get people behind the ball uh, anymore uh, with the six, six, six rule. And in the old days, when a team got a run on like that, someone would start a bit of biffo to mm-hmm. slow them down. You know, they they do something. There'd be a scrimmage or, you know. But now it's like an instant free kick and a 50-metre penalty. So you sort of think, so you basically, if you're, you're trying to rough goal. stuff, you, you're given a goal, you yeah. know, straight away. So, but I do think, you know, that, uh, you know, Melbourne showed them, they were the top side all year. And we gave as we gave a good account of ourselves until like the wheels fell off. And just to get to the grand final with the quarantining and the travel the t- team had right, to right. do, and the lack of the ability, you know, we weren't able to train as we would have normally trained, was a f- superb effort. Uh, especially considering that we really shat the bed, as we say, in the last three weeks of the home and away series uh, mm-hmm. by losing against Essendon and losing against Port Adelaide and coughing up the double chance. Uh, lesser people, uh, they would have let that get, get to them. But no, uh, Beveridge got the boys up and we had a couple of really great finals performances, really right, top right. performances. Right. It's just a pity we couldn't go the last step. Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned the ruck position this year, but is, is there anything else that that worries you about the side? Is there anything that you're going, ooh, this yep. is this is troublesome? We, look, we've had a perennial problem with goal kicking. I think we, our our perform our, our our goal kicking has been down for years, and really, you know, you you we create so many opportunities. So and we muck them up with poor kicking for goal and lack of efficiency inside fifty. We have we get as many inside 50s, more inside 50s than the, than the other teams in the competition. 
but mm-hmm. we fail to convert. You know, we get multiple opportunities, but we make hard work of it. And that's an area that I think we really need to brush up on. We really need to do that because when players downfield are doing all the hard work to get the ball inside 50 and forwards miss what should be gimmies, then mm-hmm. that's disheartening for the team. It's disheartening. We really need to kick those goals. And yeah. uh, I'm hopeful that we're going to improve on that this year. So who do you see on the list that uh, that could possibly move into a, a spot where they're going to be, you know, seizing a spot from somebody else and taking that spot from them this year? Is this the year that, you know, Eugle Hagen well, takes over? Well, you mentioned him and he was the one that I was thinking of when you, when you raised this question, because I really believe that he's a, a super talented player. He hasn't had much of an opportunity to play much football mm-hmm. uh, in the last few years because of Corona. Right. right. Uh, he's only nine, only 19. And I really, really hope that he is able to establish himself in the side this year, because as we both know, high-profile players can become victims of the media. They can become victims of journalists just wanting to write a story to keep themselves in the limelight. And if he doesn't, if he's not able to establish himself in the team, or if he gets a couple of games and doesn't do too well, uh-huh. it'll these these warriors behind their keyboards will you know start writing stuff about him and we all know what happened to Tom Boyd you know Tom Boyd was a young man who was subjected to enormous pressure uh, which basically ended up him losing falling out of love with the game um, very difficult for a young person to deal with this public exposure uh, so I really really hope that Hugo Hagen has a, a good year and is able to establish himself in the side. Um, there's a young kid there, Arthur Jones, who's really exciting to me. Uh, he's got blistering pace. And that's one one quality that you cannot, you cannot develop that absolute sensational pace that some people have, you know. It's really a factor that makes you out marks you as being something special that ability to break away in the first three or four meters is an astonishingly attractive trait to have and arthur jones has got that so i hope that uh, he has a good year i'd like to see that young defender buku kamis because i think he's got a lot of athletic ability and uh he's young and uh he's only had one game but I would like to see him establish himself as well. So um, Cody Waitman also, I mean, he shows a tremendous promise and could be a very damaging small forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, look, I, there's a lot of upside. And I also think, you know, Marcus Bontempelli is, is moving into what could be a golden era for him. He's at the prime of his footballing career age-wise, uh, and he's an astonishingly good player. Right, right, yeah. I, I and I don't know if he does this or not, but is is do you know if Cody Waitman is a surfer at all? Because yeah, he looks because he, he looks like he could leave the ground and and head out to the to the beach and get on a surfboard <laughs> and probably yeah. be a better surfer than he is footy player. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I'm sure. He, I, I believe he is into surfing. I'm pretty okay. sure I've seen some clips of him uh, at beaches and stuff like that. He's certainly got the blonde hair. Yes, he he certainly does. Yeah. So, um, you know, I who are you, who are you, are you tipping uh, Bon Bonapelli as the best and fairest this year for the club? Uh, yeah. Look, uh, Bond and Pelly, uh definitely would be up there um, again to win the best and fairest. You have to feel a little um, sorry for Jack McRae to be playing in an era where, you know, you have uh, an exceptionally talented player alongside you because Jack McRae has been amazingly consistent over mm -hmm. many seasons now. And he is also a player of the highest quality, the highest quality, but yet to win a, a best and fairest. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think that uh, Bond and Pelly, Jack McRae will definitely, you know, feature again. And Caleb Daniel is another one who's an exceptional player. I've watched uh, a lot of football over the years and I don't think I've seen a Bulldogs player have the vision and the spatial awareness that Caleb Daniel has. The, the kicks that he's able to pull off the, to pinpoint mm -hmm. In difficult situations, when he's surrounded by opponents, he can, like, thread the eye of a needle and put the ball on a teammate's chest. Uh, he's great with, with both hands. Uh, he's an exceptionally gifted player, mm -hmm. really gifted player. I love to watch him play. Okay, since, since you used to deliver the newspaper, yeah, we're going to go ahead and ask this here. Um, the season is over. The 2022 season is over. Whatever game that happens to be for the Bulldogs, what does the headline in the paper say about the Bulldogs as the season comes to a close? Um, as the season comes to a close, well, hopefully it's going to be a headline like this. Bulldogs triumph again or Bulldogs overcome the odds. Uh, it's Hopefully it's going to be a, a, a really positive thing that we're going to win the flag. Uh, but if not, I hope that it's not a headline that says Bulldogs blow their chances. <laughs> I really hope okay. it's not that. Okay. Because, you know, like if you, you, you will recall uh, that, 2016 grand final the 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 one moment the one moment that i really really began to feel doubt that we were going to have victory sorry we were going to have defeat snatched from the jaws of victory or whatever was when that goal from johannesson was disallowed mm -hmm. i my heart sank i thought oh no not again. Some flukish, freakish decision that was taken out of our hands and we are going to get dudded by this. I, that, and thank Christ, Jordan Ruffhead marked the kick in. Uh, because that, uh, Beveridge concedes too that that was a pivotal moment. When they kicked in from that disallowed goal from Johannesson, Ruffhead took that pack mark and put the ball back in there again. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just hope it's not a headline that says, you know, you know, Bulldogs blew that blow their chances. Okay. Now I, I had a, a question that I I've 
been wanting to ask you here and i and i honestly i don't have a clue how you're going to react to this and because i don't know how much you have embraced this or not but would you like to see the club re-embrace the name footscray rather than staying with western no no way no way okay it would be an absolute retrograde step and i'll tell you why I grew up in the western suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. Braybrook is in between Footscray and Sunshine. It's about from from Braybrook where I lived into the heart of Footscray would probably be about four kilometres. Okay. Now, Footscray is a, a, a working class area and it has changed dramatically over the years. Footscray has been really a an entry point for migrants into Australia since the 1950s. Okay. It's played host to many, many different migrant communities. Uh, the first were Italians, Yugoslavs, Greeks, and then later on it was the Vietnamese uh, came in to the West to Footscray and so on. Now Footscray is a very, very popular area for young couples. It's become gentrified. It's so close to the city. Mm -hmm. House prices have gone through the roof. Footscray, Yarraville, Seddon, all those areas, even Sunshine now, Braybrook, have become gentrified areas. But it's also the western suburbs, if you go further west from Footscray, there is a huge, huge growth corridor between Footscray and Geelong, Hoppers Crossing, Point Cook, Werribee, Trugganina, uh, Wyndham Vale, all of the, some of these places I don't even know the names of. There is a massive population growth. Okay. And the Western Suburbs has got to be the name that we retain okay. because those people belong to the West. And if they're going to identify with a football club, they're not going to identify with Footscray. Footscray is a place that they would rarely visit. Okay. But they would they identified as the Western suburbs, the Western Bulldogs, and we must not change back to Footscray. We okay. must not. That is that is one heck of a great geography lesson there. Thank you. Yeah. That was, that was well, you know, was I, I went down there a few years ago and I actually got lost. <laughs> I was trying to get back huh. to Bendigo. I mean, it is just a massive growth area, a massive growth area. And, okay. and a lot of the migrants there, a lot of the a lot of the uh, people who've moved into the area are from Indian background. We mm-hmm. have a large, large Indian diaspora in in Melbourne now. People, because as you know, I mean, India India is the you know the birthplace of of mathematics, and uh, uh, India is very large numbers of of people who are excellent with computers and mm-hmm. programming and in all those areas and. You know, we have a large, large Indian population now in the Western suburbs, uh, particularly health professionals in you know, medicine, nursing and so on, uh, and computer and IT people working in, uh, in, in commerce and industry. So, yeah, a lot. Of, and, you know, one of our um, leading supporters, uh, I don't know if you see, he wears an Indian headdress, okay. a guy, uh, I think his name's Gary. He comes from down that way, but you sometimes see him on the, on the TV, he wears uh, he wears a big Indian headdress. But he's an okay. Indian guy. Um, I think I think his name's Gary. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, and you see in frequently now you see 
you know, Indian people of Indian background wearing bulldogs colours. So yeah, I would not change back to Footscray at all. Makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. Are you are you prepared for a few bulldogs trivia questions? Sure, go ahead. All right. Okay. I have one. Let's see. I have three. I have seven of them here for you. Okay. okay. What bulldog will play his two hundredth game in round one this year? Oh, good question. Two hundredth game in round one. Uh, can we go on to the next question? I'll think about that while we sure. I will I will give you a hint on that one. We have mentioned that person's name during our conversation today. So. Um the two hundredth game for the Bulldogs, not for not for another club, like not uh, a combined that I don't necessarily know. Based upon okay. where I got the information from, it's two hundred games total. I can uh, let me let me look here real quickly, and I can uh, I can clarify that real quickly for you here. Uh, let me let me I can check that for you here because that was I didn't dig that deeply into that, and I probably should have. Uh, let's see here. Let's go to um, actually most of his games were not played for the Bulldogs. Oh, not played for the Bulldogs. I will tell you. In, in fact, oh, I will tell. Stephen, Stephen I will tell Martin. you. Yes, it is, is Stephen it Ste Martin. Yes, Stephen it is. Martin, yeah, yep. yeah. In fact, he's only played nine games for the Bulldogs so far. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All right. So that was not a great question on my part. There. This one, I think, this yeah. is a better one. Which senior coach has won the most games in Bulldogs history? Uh, I'm pretty sure that's got to be Luke Beveridge. It is, but only by one game over Ted, right? over Ted Witten, 92 to 91. Okay. Yeah. He overtook, he, uh, he overtook Ted Witten last year. Right. Who led the Bulldogs in disposal average last year? Again, I think it would have been, I think it's Jack McRae. That is right. Yes. See, I told you that first question was lousy. Uh, <laughs> Now, which three players have kicked at least 500 goals for the Bulldogs? Um, Simon Beasley. Uh-huh. Um, Kelvin Templeton. Mm, don't have that name written down. Uh, Sim Simon Beasley. Okay, hang on. Simon Beasley's one. Uh, go on to the next question. I'll come back to it. Okay. Okay. Uh, who led the club in the total number of tackles last year? Mm, good question. Uh, well, the obvious one would be like Tom Liberatore, but I don't think it is Tom Liberatore. Well, quit, quit doubting yourself because that is who it is. It is, okay. Yes. Well, my, my, my hint for that one, if you were struggling with that one, was that this 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 AFL player has the uh, has a tattoo artist with the worst spatial awareness. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're on the same page there. Um, look, I'm getting back to the goal kickers. Uh, so Simon Beasley's one. He's number one. He's at he's at five seventy five. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Templeton is at four ninety four. So he was close. Yeah, close. Um, geez, 
Jack Collins. Mm, he's at no. 385. Yeah. Both both he's of these pl- both of these players played in the 2000s. Um Jack Collins. Can you give me an initial? Uh, do you want a last initial or first initial? Give me a last initial. J and G. J? Mm-hmm. Is that a first and a last initial? No, that's a last initial for both of them. Oh. J and G. J. Oh, Brad Johnson, of course. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so Simon Beasley... Brad Johnson and G. Uh, no, I just can't think. Chris Grant. Oh, of course, my <laughs> Godfather. How could I forget that? I, you know, I, I saw him as a seventeen-year-old when he kicked fifty-four goals in his first season. Um, you know, I, I rank him as one of my greatest bulldogs ever. You know, yeah. I mean, he was robbed of, robbed of a Brownlow medal. Mm-hmm. Um, the same as George, you know, George Bissett was robbed as robbed of a Brownlow medal. I did not know Georgie, that. Georgie Bissett, in the last game of the year against Carlton, he kicked six goals, but he got reported. Ah. Everyone said he was best on ground. Wow, absolute best wow. on ground. But six goals, but got reported. That's but awful. He was found not guilty. But because he got reported, the umpires didn't give him any votes. Wow. And it, and they, cost, and they, it cost him the Brownlow medal. They can't go back and do that retroactively then. No. Although, you know, it, it was a complete injustice. Georgie Bissett, um, Georgie Bissett uh, played for Braybrook Football Club and uh, grew up in our area and is still going strong. Um, you know, we've, Braybrook had some great footballs. George Bissett, Ted Witten, Wally mm-hmm. Donald played 200 games for the Bulldogs. Dougie Hawkins, of course. Brian Wilson, who won a Brownlow medal. Um, Gary Merrington played 169 games for the Bulldogs. Dennis Collins played over 100 games for the Bulldogs before he went to Richmond and Carlton. There's been some marvellous, marvellous players come out of the Braybrook Football Club. There's no doubt about it. Absolute, yeah, fabulous football club. I did not know that Chris Grant had also been Laura Bibbrano. Uh-uh. Right. The circumstances were this. Chris Grant in a game against Carlton. This was in a year where Carlton had been offering him huge money to go and transfer over from the Bulldogs to Carlton, and he okay. resisted these temptations. In a game against Carlton, he got reported by the umpires for it was like a stomach punch or something like that, right? Yeah, And he played a very, very good game and was reported by the umpires and became, uh, well, the yeah, and he got off. He got off. He was found not guilty. Now, Ian Collins, who was head of the AF, well, I don't know what his position was in the AFL. He wasn't the president of the AFL, but he had some executive position there at the AFL. He had the power to open up an inquiry into uh-huh. the incident and as a result of that inquiry into the incident i think the decision was overturned and yeah. grant was found guilty 
and it cost him a Brownlow medal. Wow. Ian Collins was apparently very dirty on Chris Grant for not accepting Carlton's offer. This is this is what how people feel it played out. And Ian Collins got back at Chris Grant by doing this. That's the that's the the story that people believe. Wow. Whether or not it's true or not, yeah. I don't know. But certainly there was bad blood between the two clubs uh, over that. And Chris Grant was just a marvellous, marvellous footballer. Uh, I, you know, a great privilege to watch him play because he was a guy who could do anything on the football field. Mm-hmm. And being a gun player, he was often subjected to scragging and people hanging on. And he didn't really ever get the free kicks that he, he should have got from mm-hmm. the umpires. But boy, what a gun. He could play centre-half forward, centre-half back. He was an outstanding footballer and still holds a record for most number of goals kicked by a 17-year-old. In, in He kicked 54 goals as a 17-year-old. So, wow, that, that's yeah, amazing. Great player. That, that's, that's, an impressive, that's an impressive mark right there for such a young age. Uh, yeah, he, he, he played for Dalesford Football Club, which is not far from where I live. Uh, okay. It's only about half an hour's ride. Uh, on the motorbike my motorbike that i ride at the moment uh craig it stayed in my shed for 31 years i've got a cb750 honda mm-hmm. um and it, it it conked out on me coming back from melbourne uh back in about 1991 and it got put in the shed and i never i, I it just i mean life took over and i was busy with a whole lot of other things building a house and stuff and uh raising two daughters and um yeah the bike got put undercover and uh, it was only about about 18 months ago I decided well look I've got plenty of time on my hands I won't be going back to Indonesia let's get this bike going and uh, yeah I I took it apart and uh, redid the engine I bought it out to 836cc it used to be 812 bought it out to 836 Um, you know a good mate of mine spray painted the bike it looks fantastic yeah and um yeah, I'm, I just really love riding this motorbike. I took it out yesterday and had to go to a couple of places and I had seven people ask me about the motorbike because, like, it's 50 years old now. Wow. And it looks fantastic, but it sounds even better. It's, <laughs> it's, got, nothing, it's got nothing in the pipes uh-huh. and uh, it's a four-into-two system and the mufflers, well – they're more spark arresters than anything else. They're made out of brass. A mate okay. of mine turned them up out of brass. It's polished brass. They're very unique. Uh, it's a unique motorcycle, and people see it and they say, mm-hmm. "What is that?" You know. And uh, yeah, people stop me and talk about this motorbike all the time, and they just want to hear it start. They just want me to start it up, and when I start it up, wow, <laughs> they jump. Wow, it's, that, it, that's. It is, uh, you know, I, I've not, I've not ridden, I've not driven a motorcycle. I mean, I've been on several, but I've, I've never had a motorcycle. It's not, uh, I guess I never, I never quite caught that bug uh, for that sort of thing. But, but with the way gas prices are right now, I'm thinking that I might be time to consider one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I ride mine all the time now. And mm-hmm. like uh, my old man had the motorcycling bug. I think I told you his his brother Jimmy was in in show business and had plenty of money, and his brother Jimmy had uh, the first bought the first overhead valve Norton in Newcastle when the the Norton released an overhead valve model in the nineteen thirties, and Jimmy and my old man used to go up to Scotland on the motorbike, and uh, 
they'd speed through these villages. And whenever they went through a village, me bro, me, me uncle Jimmy used to say to the old man, put your hand over the number plate, youngin. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So are you ready for the last two questions? Sure. Okay. Here we go. Um, who have the Bulldogs defeated the most times in their history? And it's two different clubs that have the same number of victories against them. Okay. Um, I think it would be St. Kilda. Uh, and maybe... Oh, we've got modern clubs as well, haven't we? Well, they I will tell oh, you the most, yeah. The, I the will tell you the, ne neither of these are terribly modern. Okay, right. Okay. Look, I'll I'll go for St. Kilda and North Melbourne. North Melbourne is one of them. The other one is the Swans. Oh, South Melbourne. So, Swans, yep. yeah. Yep. The Swans. Yep. Both you they've uh the Bulldogs have beaten both of them 83 times and lost to them 79 times. Okay. Yeah. So it's to yep. go. I know. I got a feeling the club that we've been defeated by the most is Geelong. Well, I can certainly hope so. Right. Am I allowed to say that? Sure. <laughs> um, let's see here if I can, uh, let's see if I can find that here real quickly. Um, uh, the most losses? No. Well, you're se they're second to Collingwood. 110 losses Collingwood. to Collingwood. Okay, sure. Wow. Well, no look, I, I know that Ted Whitten played for 19 seasons, 20 seasons for the Bulldogs. Uh -huh. He never played in a winning game at Geelong. And Doug Hawkins played 329 games for us and never played in a winning game at Geelong. Hmm. Well, that means it was a hoodoo ground for us, an absolute hoodoo ground. Yeah, the, the the record against Collingwood is not great. Four, 48 wins and 110 losses. Yeah, I know. But I was at the Western Oval the day Simon Beasley kicked the goal after the siren to win the game for us against Collingwood, <laughs> which was – have you ever seen clipping, a clip of that? I I don't think so. It's, it's one of the biggest brain fades by any defender ever. Uh, Gubby Allen uh, for Collingwood – got the ball in the back pocket from, I think, a free kick. Mm -hmm. Or it could have been a mark, but he, he certainly it, it, it was in a situation where play had stopped. He took his kick. He kicked the ball across ground to Greg Phillips, who was the Collingwood fullback, who was standing about 40 metres, 45 metres out from the Collingwood goal. He kicked the ball across ground. And Beasley anticipated and ran in and intercepted the mark and took the mark just before Phillips could get to the ball. Wow. And he went back and he slotted the goal. It was at the Barclay Street end. The ball went back to the centre for a bounce. And as soon as the, bounce, the ball was bounced, the siren went. So there would have been two seconds on mm -hmm. the clock when Beasley took that mark. And that cost Collingwood the game. Very wow. famous wow. game. I was there. I was there. All right. Your last question. Which player led the Bulldogs in time on ground percentage in 2021? 
and he wow. played it. He played in 19 of the 26 games. Time on grab percentage. Uh, I'll go for Caleb Daniel. Not Caleb Daniel. Uh-uh. He was, uh, let me go back here real quickly to my list. He was a little further down the list. And it's actually a name that I'm not that familiar with which is, uh, you know, I'm, I was very surprised by that. Uh, it is, give me, the, give me the initials. Well, if I give you the first initial, it's going to be, it, the last initial is a C. Last. Zane Cordy. Yeah. 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 That's, Zane that's, Cordy. Eh? That's not a name that I hear that I, when I watch Bulldogs games, it's not a name that I hear a whole heck of a lot. Well, look, he's become a bit of a whipping boy, which I think is a bit unfair. Um, people, like, in 2016, he played primarily as a forward mm-hmm. uh, and kicked some crucial goals. In a, it was his first season in our finals campaign. Since then, he's been used as a, a backman and, like, uh, and, and occasionally in the ruck. Um, his father and his brother were great players for the Bulldogs. I knew Neil Cordy, his uncle, um, quite well because he taught at Essendon Tech when I was teaching. Neil's a great guy, played for the Bulldogs about 125 games and went up to the Sydney and played for the Swans. Really good player. And, and uh, Zane's father, um, Brian, was a very good defender for the Bulldogs, played about 140 games. Okay. Um, Look, I, he's, he's become a bit of a whipping boy, and I think quite unfairly. Um, he uh, is a pretty dour defensive player. Uh, people criticise him because they say he gets beaten in one-on-ones. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a bit of a fan. I think he's a really hard-tackling, hard-working player, not, and he uses the ball pretty well. Um, okay. Not spectacular, but you know, he does his job for sure. All right. So yeah, and again, that's 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 just not a name for some reason that I that I that my memory is remembering hearing all that often. And maybe right. I have, and it just didn't register with me. But hey, listen, bef- I know we're going to close up pretty soon. Uh huh. Let me tell you what I think is the greatest individual effort I've ever seen on a football field, and it came in the 2016 Grand Final. Okay. And it happened in the last quarter. And people call it the wall of bigs. When Shane Biggs held the ball in to our forward half with about five or six individual efforts spread over a 45-second passage of play. Mm-hmm. He was involved in so he was the guy that that uh that uh I think the Swans player, I forget who it was now. Um, he charged down the guy's kick. He either got a free kick or took a mark and kicked and, and Shane Biggs charged the ball down, kept the ball down, tackled. He tackled three or four times. He smothered. He was just sensational. And if you haven't seen that film clip, it's 45 seconds of absolute mayhem, which results in Liam Pickin kicking a goal. And it was all down to Shane Biggs. Just a tremendous effort, you know. And mm-hmm. he said, I've heard him interviewed about it, and he said, well, I had to do that because I'm a half-back I'm a half behind player, and I was way out of position. If they got the <laughs> ball out, out of our forward half, I knew we, we, we were going to be outnumbered down back. 
Yeah, it's a tremendous, tremendous place of play. People call it the Wall of Bigs. Okay. Very exciting. I will, I will find that, uh, I will find that clip and uh, and take a peek at that. But yeah, that's not one because I, because I, I mean, I've seen, I've seen highlights of the the grand final, and I may have run across it during that, but you yeah. know that until I got the Watch AFL app here. You know the 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 few games that they were showing each year, they they would never show the grand final on television here in the U.S. because they you know they wanted people to pay to watch it yeah, somewhere yeah. along the line. But you know now with the the Watch AFL app is a great tool for us to be able to watch. Hey, listen, are you familiar with a YouTube channel called Al's Highlights? Al's He's a highlights. Al's highlights. He's a bulldog supporter, and uh, he. He does tremendous work putting together highlights of Bulldogs games. And he does, uh, for example, he does what he's called octo calls. Like, for example, Bontempelli's goal against GWS in mm-hmm. the preliminary final in 2016, he's got an octo call of that. So you see the same play eight times, but the uh, they're recorded from different railway, uh, different um, cameras, different radio stations, oh, different okay. I see. Uh, TV okay. stations. It's the same play with maybe three or four different TV commentaries and uh, three or four different radio commentaries. So Al's highlights are really good. I'll check that out. That's a, yeah, that's not, uh, that's not what I'm YouTube, familiar with. YouTube Al's highlights, okay. really good stuff. I will look for that one. Well, well, Stephen, this has been an absolute pleasure. This is, you know, I've, uh, I was extraordinarily excited for the chance to talk with you and the, the stories you've told. And, you know, even the, some of the stuff that we talked about off air, just absolutely fascinating that, uh, that you've been able to, to travel the way that you have. And hopefully once all of the restrictions come down, you can get on your bike and head wherever the heck you want. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Hey, and look, I've I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, you're a great listener and great questions. Um, I felt very comfortable doing this podcast, and I'm really, really pleased to have got on board, Craig. So thanks very well, thank much you. for the opportunity. You bet. Yeah, and if if Ray is interested, by all means, uh, I'll contact know, him this afternoon. Have him have him get, reach out to me then. Well, ladies we'll and gentlemen. Do. I'd like to thank my guest, Stephen Campbell, for joining me this morning or this afternoon now uh, to share some of these fascinating journeys and, uh, and stories with us. And uh, just, I'm still trying to, trying to wrap my head around the fact that, you know, just Ted Witten shows up after driver's training. Um, <laughs> but you know, Stephen, thanks so very much, sir. This was an absolute joy. I truly enjoyed this. I did too as well, Craig. Thanks so much for the opportunity and all the best, buddy. You bet. You bet. Go Bulldogs! And a big thank you to Stephen Campbell for absolutely being so generous with his time and generous with his home. Once you've heard this story, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be impressed with this gentleman. This was an absolute treat to talk with him. Don't forget that you can uh, reach me over at my website, ayankonthefooty.com. You can also reach me by email at ayankonthefooty at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at yank underscore on, and on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for ayankonthefooty. And remember, if you get on that mailing list, as soon as a new episode comes out, it will be in your inbox. That's the quickest way to get it to you, fresh out of the oven. 
just like I'm going to be doing with this one here in just a few moments. And folks, I want to thank you for listening. This is actually the 17th preview episode that I've been able to do for this year. I have one other one that I was hoping to do, and I do still hope to do it, but it may come after the season has begun. I am still looking for a Richmond supporter to sit down and talk with. So if you happen to be a Richmond supporter, please consider reaching out. Shoot me an email at yankonthefooty at gmail.com or head over to my website and fill out the register as a guest form. That would be a huge help. You can also leave me a note on Messenger uh, or you can leave me uh, a DM as well on Twitter. I do check those quite frequently. Folks, I cannot thank you enough for listening because uh, without you, you know, I'm not doing this podcast. And I truly, truly thank you for the kind words that you have shared with me over the last couple of years. And the encouragement over these last few weeks as I've been doing these preview episodes has been overwhelming. It, it, it means the world to me. And it's, uh, it's, I'm having a blast. I've learned so much. I've had the chance to talk with so many people that I otherwise would have likely never spoken with. And, and you can't trade that for anything. We're just a few hours away from the first bounce. And ladies and gentlemen, as always, may your dribble kick never hit the post. I'll catch you later. This has been episode 149 of A Yank on the Footy. Don't forget that you can reach me at yank underscore on or to yankonthefooty at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at A Yank on the Footy. And check out the website at yankonthefooty.com. And I do hope you'll consider signing up for that mailing list. And please share this episode with your footy friends. And if you have a relative who's been a fan for many, many, many years, I think they're going to enjoy my discussion here that I had with Mr. Campbell. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this is Craig Wessels. Goodbye.